Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Boston. Good afternoon, America. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, Monday through Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is your host, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, emanating from Los Angeles. Patrick, how are you? I'm emanating away and looking forward to the weekend. Um, And uh, actually, I'm I'm very pleased. Uh, America has a new queen. And who's that? Uh, Gabriel Douglas. Oh, Patrick, I don't like the use of royalty terms, but, that's, <laughs> but I know what you mean. I always dislike. I always, for example, dislike the term the, the terms used surrounding the Kennedy family as being America's royalty. Yeah, I find that extremely distasteful. Well, in, in this case, it's Queen of the Olympics. It's, it's Queen of the of the Bars. Gabriel, I don't. Did you watch uh, any of uh, Gabriel Douglas's performances? Yes, I saw some of that. I thought it was amazing. I mean, I I, I find the find it excruciating to watch those routines, but it's it's great. I mean, I yeah. certainly admire what they do. She's only one of four women that have made it all the way through the uh, the uh, all around and won a gold medal, and she's yep. only fifteen. <laughs> wow, I'll well, take uh, dedication. Uh, yes, def- definitely so. A- African American girl from um, Virginia Beach, right? And, and she's got a, a career ahead of her too. I'd say so. Yeah, lo- it's great, a great, great uh, deal. I mean, she was tremendous. I saw, I saw, I think I saw at least some of that. I don't know if I saw every single one of the routines. Isn't, but isn't it, um, isn't it interesting how how just this week of, of athletics can get even those of us who aren't interested in athletics to watch TV. Right, right. I mean, I generally don't don't uh, take in sports, but I like the Olympics. I watch it every year. Yeah. I mean, every time it happens. Yeah. Both summer and winter. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we got a great, uh, well, not a great, but a good, a very good um, jobs report yesterday, 163,000 jobs. Right. Uh, up 100,000 from the last month. Um, Why did unemployment, though, go up? More people decided that the economy was good, so they started looking for work. No, what I mean is the unemployment rate went up. Yeah. Oh, I see. In yeah. other words, they they got they they left the roles of just you know unemployed in 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 the in the real sense. Yeah. And they right. started to I get that. Okay. Yeah. But uh, that's glad to see that. And uh, I don't know what do you think is going to happen in Syria. It looks like Aleppo, the Syrian government is kind of conceding Aleppo. I don't know, Patrick, but I hope that we don't get involved in the same mistake that we made in Afghanistan, although I, I think in the bigger sense that was necessary because we were fighting the Soviet Union. And I think that the Mujahideen in Afghanistan played a major role in in bringing that evil empire down, along with some other things. Well, they certainly but nevertheless, we, we seem to be backing the, the rebels who, have, who seem to have the same characteristics as the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And now, that's so, interesting. Um, I have uh, seen no reports that were backing the rebels. And in fact, I'm hearing a lot of Republican complaints that were not backing the rebels. Where are you getting your information? 
Well, I, I, I don't know if we should back the Rebels. I mean, I just, uh, in, in observing them casually, they seem like they're not a heck of, I don't know if they're all that better or than um, than Assad, who I think is despicable, and I think he should go, and I hope he does. Um, but the alternative is something that uh, I just think we should be careful about. Oh, I agree. And uh, the, the free Syrian army has complained loudly that they're not getting any help from the United States. There was an intelligence report came out yesterday that said that uh, the Free Syrian Army has been infiltrated by Al Qaeda in Iraq, so we're we're staying fairly so far away. And should. Yeah, we we should definitely. Patrick, um, yesterday we talked about uh, oil subsidies and uh, that this was a depreciation of um, of, of taxes, uh, or or an acceleration of the depreciated tax. That that's one um, of the many. Yeah. That's right. And uh, you and I both laid out legitimate points on that, which I think is a very strong, uh, op, you know, op opposing opinions in that you believe that they should be taxed more, both rich people and rich corporations, so that the government can grow and continue and, and um, you know, get more money so they can give it to other people. No, that's not I, what I said, well, but continue how, on. Thank you. However, and I, I would contend that the government should – yeah, work within its paradigm and uh, possibly reduce some of its excesses. And you know, I like to make kind of half half joking but serious comments about about public sector hacks. You well, know, both in the you federal. Do that, we need to welcome in our listeners. Sure, let's welcome aboard our listeners. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. And, of course, our online partners, Blog Talk Radio, and you're listening to Cyber Station USA Radio Networks, our host station. And we've got Stitches, which is our app that you can listen to the program on your cell phone. This is uh, Chuck Morse along with Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Patrick, how are you? I'm pretty good, and I want to remind our listeners they can be part of the program. They can uh, call us at 424-675-6806. They can also email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. And after the show, check out our website, fairnessradio.com. And um, also our uh, our sponsor yes. for this segment is Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com, which is your source of information on how to manage your health and your body naturally. Okay, Patrick, we were talking again about the um – Tax uh, the uh, ta so-called tax subsidies, which actually, as as our as our guest Philip Warburg stated, are um, accelerated depreciation for tax deductions. Um, the you know you and I take a different position on that. That's not what, why I'm bringing it up though. So let's not. I don't know sure. if we need to re rehash okay. it. I'm bringing it up because in the course of your presentation, sandwiched in the middle of that, you threw out the comment that. Not taxing these uh, the oil companies more meant that someone, and you didn't mention who or how many, would be able to buy big yachts and get you know gold pinky rings and and Cadillacs or whatever the heck you said. And um, I find that to be very offensive. Uh, you know, I think that if you're going, to, first of all, there's nothing wrong with getting a big yacht. And you threw it in there in an undigested way because it's a kind of a dog whistle to left-wing listeners. 
Firstly, you're implying that the people buying the yachts are Republicans, or as you like to say, Republicans. And we've talked about my contention I, 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 that I, I, most of these people are. I've never myself saying that. If, oh, uh, you do. Yeah, oh, okay. Republicans. Okay. And right. uh, you know, and and we've we've argued whether or not most of the people who are in fact the wealthiest in America are liberal or conservative. Democrat or Republican and whatnot, with my Which claiming they're mostly. To, but continue no, on. I understand that, and I would. I'm going to make another presentation on that today, by the way. Um, but but the implication being that they are Republicans and that somehow they are taking something away from someone else. After all, they didn't build it, and that somehow they're not deserving of these yachts. Now, I think that it, it's more appropriate if you're going to accuse somebody of buying a yacht, and I don't think I think you can make this accusation. It should be with the person's name and why it's objectionable. Like, I have made fun in a sort of half-hearted way over Senator John Kerry, who is the richest man in the history of Congress, who bought a yacht. It's called the Scaramouche. And he registered it in Newport, Rhode Island, so he could dodge a $60,000 Massachusetts state tax bill. He got caught by a reporter from the Boston Herald who took pictures of the yacht with the word Newport etched onto the back, He's not a resident of Rhode Island. And he brought it up to the paper, and as a result, John Kerry had to pay the tax and did. I'm only bringing that up because if I mention John Kerry's yacht, I am mentioning a specific person, and I am mentioning why I think there's something wrong with what he's doing with his yacht, and also I am making a little bit of fun of him because he lives off of the estate of his second wife's first husband's trust fund. But to sort of make this sort of accusation without any without any attribution as if there's something wrong with buying a yacht and I don't know if any particular uh, executive who works for an oil company has bought a yacht I assume some of them probably have I don't know if they do or not I mean I don't think Texas is a big place for yachts it seems like Actually, unless I, uh, Texas not only has a, uh, a good sized coastline but it used to have its own navy before it became a state and there are yachts in the Corpus Christi uh, yacht harbor yeah, but how many are in Irving? Anyway, Patrick, the point is that that's where a lot of these people are headquartered now. I, I'm only bringing it up because I found it offensive that you would throw this out there without any kind of an attribution of exactly who was buying the yacht and why this is something bad. I mean, really, what are you actually telling the listener when you throw this out in the course of a conversation about tax policy, that these people can buy more yachts and more diamond pinky rings and, and uh, whatnot. Okay, first of all, um, the people of the United States, uh, through their uh, interest uh, organizations and through meetings with their members of Congress, uh, request that the government provide them with certain services. Those services range from the military to protect them, to school, to uh, grants for their students to go to college, to highways, uh, the FAA, National Security Council, the, all these services uh, our, our government is requested by its citizens to provide. In order to provide those services, it costs money, and that money comes from tax, taxes, and we all pay those taxes. Some of us pay more than others, which means that, <clears throat> which is fine because we have a, a progressive tax, tax structure. But when one person or one company or when one group of people or one group of companies figures out a way not to pay their fair share, the government still has to come up with that money to provide the services that everybody has asked for. 
So the way they do it is they either charge the, those people who are paying their fair share more or they borrow it. Under the Bush administration, huge tax breaks were granted to corporations and wealthy people, so they weren't paying their fair share, but the Bush administration still wanted to give us all the services plus fight two wars, so they borrowed the money, and now we're going to have to deal with that. So when one group, one person, one corporation doesn't pay their fair share, the rest of us have to make it up. So that's why I say that somebody else has to pay the taxes. The, the outflow from the government is the same whether or not Exxon pays any taxes or General Electric pays any taxes or, or Kerry pays any taxes. It's still the same amount of money. I'm not advocating that the government grow, and in fact, I've noticed that this president has reduced government expenditures by about 10% since he's been in office, something the last administration was not able to do, although it talked a lot about it. This one hasn't talked about it, it just does it. Uh, secondly, as far as the yachts go, the yacht was a metaphorical symbol. It, re it didn't refer to specific people's yachts, although I could point out the 25-person speedboat that the current Republican presidential nominee races around in, which, was, which many people do consider a yacht. But that was metaphorical, but your, and that was a response to your contention that if you leave wealthy people, investors and corporations with more money, they'll invest and create m new jobs. And I pointed out that the reality simply hasn't been that. What they have done with it is they've accumulated mass fortunes, some of which some people use to buy yachts, summer homes. And I noticed that Governor Romney is now doubling the size of his summer home in, in uh, the beach out here in uh, Los Angeles and putting in an elevator for his antique and very valuable cars, which the rest of us really don't get to do much. And <clears throat> so that doesn't necessarily work. It's a nice theory, but it doesn't work. Some people, when when asked not to pay their fair share of taxes, keep the money, amass fortunes, and spend it on luxuries for themselves. They don't create jobs. Other people do create jobs, but they create them in China. So I'm pointing out that there's a gap between the theory and the practice. That's all. I wasn't referring to any specific person's yacht. Well, it sounds very insulting, and you could replace the word with Jew, and it would really be anti-Semitic. No, I, those Jews, I, I, I know you wouldn't do that, but that's how I take it, Patrick. Well, you, I take you it take personally. It you want, it wasn't that that's way. right. I want to talk about how I take it as somebody who had family murdered in the Holocaust because well, so did Jews I. were. Thank you, because Jews were Jew, perceived. And I would point out that that many of the people who run those oil companies, most of them, are not Jewish. Yeah, but the thing is that Jews were perceived as people who had something that they didn't earn, that they didn't really have, ent were entitled to. Uh, you know, Karl Marx referred to them as hucksters, and that the way to get rid of this huckstering was to annihilate Judaism. Well, and I think that the, the term, when we hear somebody throw around, you know, terms like people buying big yachts, and by the way, Mitt Romney's boat is very small compared to the Scaramouche, which was John Kerry's boat and still is that he tried to cheat on taxes with. Incidentally, um, we have but, a break coming up and a guest waiting. Okay, um, but anyway, the thing is, it's an insult to people who have earned money or who have money, um, and and it's one of these broad statements that generally falls, in my opinion, under the category of prejudice. Also, you contradicted yourself on the first point when you said the government needs X number of dollars. Uh, it has to get it one way or the other by either taxes or borrowing. And then you said, well, yet the, the, apparently the Obama administration has reduced the size of government. So... That makes my point, which is that the government is not fixed in terms of how much it costs. It can be reduced. Obama has reduced it, not by willingly, but he had to because we were in a recession. But nevertheless, you can reduce the size of government. It's not a fixed cost. 
and you can reduce it by getting, in fact, I think that's what the whole message of uh, Wisconsin was about, that uh, state employees, which is the government of Wisconsin, were getting these pensions and were getting their health insurance benefits, when most working people who have to pay that, pay taxes, support that, don't have those things. So government can be reduced without hurting basic services. You can, re- and that's a class And we do really have thing. to take a break, Chuck. All right, but I'm glad that Obama has done that. Okay, I don't know well, if he's we done enough of it. <laughs> right. We'll take I, I, the break, Patrick, when uh, it's time to take the break. It, it was time to take the break two minutes ago. Okay, then why don't we do that right now? We'll take okay. a break, and we'll be right back. Okay. Come on in. Come on in with Andrew uh, Suki. Andrew will be with us in the afternoon segment, the uh, Music Friday segment. And right now, here's your host and our contributor, Dr. Judith Reisman. The, uh, thanks, Patrick. We're back, and our guest is Dr. Judith Reisman, the author of Sexual Sabotage. Uh, Judith, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Delighted to join you guys. You're so you're, you're so gentile and gentle with one another. It's just it's just just a delight to hear your little chit chat back and forth. All right. Well, yeah, we we sometimes tend to talk in little mini speeches, I suppose you might say. <laughs> Judith, you you uh, are an expert on the infamous career of Alfred Kinsey and his progressive ideas. Uh, which uh, really took effect in the late 1940s, thanks to the Rockefeller Foundation uh, supporting the publication of, uh, and, and the publicizing of his books, mm-hmm. which uh, debauched a great deal of our conventional morality in this country. You make a case for that. You trace it all the way from Kinsey right up till today. Um, I recently the Sandusky. <laughs> well, sure, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, you, some people would say that uh, Kinsey's uh, developments with regard to how we view sexuality today are progressive and, and are good. Um, mm-hmm. You and I would differ. You and I would differ in that. But I think the agenda goes back to long before Kinsey. Um, mm-hmm. I recently, in, in, in the course of researching for uh, something that I'm writing, I fell upon the work of of, uh, of Doctor uh, of, of, a, of a Doctor Robeson who um, mm, wrote yeah. a book called um, Proofs of a Conspiracy back in 1790s. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. the head of a university mm-hmm. in Scotland, very reputable figure. And he talks about the agenda of the French Revolution, which was, in a sense, mm-hmm. the world's first communist revolution. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how they viewed the idea of blurring the difference between the sexes. Right, um, right. And, and also the Marquis de Sade was part of that. Mm-hmm. This idea that um, eventually was expressed by 
Freud in his concept of polymorphous perversity, which was mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the best and ultimate virtuous goal of human sexuality was to be able to do anything with anyone in any combination, anytime, anywhere. And to uh, and those who disagreed with that were involved with false consciousness, and they were neurotics. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, I mean, actually, when you when you look at Kinsey, he's really it's just a continuation, in essence, of not just the the French Revolution, uh, you know, that took place at that time, uh, not just that. But I mean, it goes all the way back. I mean, it, it, there's always been a battle in terms of quote. Are we to be pagan, or and are we to be barbarians, or are we to be civilized societies? Um, the one requires one kind of character development, and the other requires a different kind of character development. So you and I, and, and Pat, and all the rest of us sitting here listening to the radio, have been the, uh, the, the benef- have benefited from um, an opportunity to grow in a society that was based upon uh, delayed rewards and uh, that was based upon uh, holding back, um, not killing, not killing the guy across the, you know, across the way right. because you want his his turkey leg or something, and yeah. now we're paying a big price because we're moving back again. It's this pendulum is swinging always. Either that or ordering the government to confiscate it from him. But uh, mm, that's true. The, you know, you made we made reference to paganism, and I think that. You know, we could we could discuss the Bible, of course, and the main tension there is the fight between paganism and monotheism, with mm-hmm. uh, God telling the children of Israel to mm-hmm. not to reject pagan practices, and a lot of those mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. Uh, without without context morality. And uh, right. and by the way, it's not just the Bible; it's also Hammurabi's code, and you could take mm-hmm. a look at the codes of all religions, all major religions in the world. And it's virtually identical. It's very similar in terms of the development of the uh, the moral decalogue versus um, an unrestrained uh, society. And that they all advocate and teach not only sexual restraint and, and restraint from violence, but also what are the proper types of relationships you should have and how people should be divided. And, and that includes not only individual relationships, but relationships between nations, uh, what, you know, property rights, and, and all the rest. And I think that the modern so-called scientific movement that was launched in the French Revolution, not that, mm-hmm. as you say, it's always been there, mm-hmm. it, it's, in a sense it's a regression to ancient times. It's a regression to the pagan ideas that, that were involved with Moloch. But, yeah, but well, we always do that. We always the, do that, yeah. Oh, yeah, but it's sought to overthrow not only what is conventional morality, but what is, in, a, in fact, been proven through, time, through trial and error over many millennia to be the best sort of conduct for a civilization. Yeah, well, any time you find a civilization that starts devouring its own, so to speak, cannibalizing its own children or, and, and devaluing women uh, in, in that manner as women women, not as, you know... Uh, not as fierce uh, warriors, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, we start moving into a place where uh, the whole place comes apart, and that's what we're seeing here. And that's the Sandusky and the president of Penn State. That and and by the way, 
anybody who has read history, who who knows anything about literature, cross-cultural literature, French literature, Russian literature, uh, you know, um, English literature, anybody anybody who is really knowledgeable in these things, and of course most of us aren't because we haven't been trained to be knowledgeable in these things, uh, will 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 be able to identify the fact that it was only when when nations uh, were able to become um, monotheistic when they were able to engage in in monogamy and believe in fidelity and and these kinds of things prior to marriage and chastity and all that that we were able to evolve to the point where we get those yachts that you you guys were just arguing about. Um, so it's more than just the king and and the emperor who get the yachts and, and get to tool around that way. So it's never been to the advantage of of normal human beings to live in a society which uh which degrades um women and children in the way that our society has fallen in, you know victim to doing uh pornography spewing out everywhere of course big huge problem capturing mm. our university presidents capturing um, more than one president I'm sure here and there and uh dictating so much of the conduct of of judges and the decisions that they make in a courtroom lawyers the way they argue or don't police the way they prosecute a case or do not uh attorneys generals and so forth and so your your nation in terms of its policies in terms of its righteousness its justice will function as a reflection of the sexual promiscuity that has been part pro- promoted within that given society. So as we go into the classrooms now, we see our little children uh uh reading and learning about sexual conduct that is that had this nation had identified uh as criminal for year for its entire existence until the last few years when we got to be really smart um as uh, as we see that happening in the classrooms and parents have no control over that. Um, and are and and whether they're Republicans or Democrats, whoever's in charge isn't going to shut down the the um, this massive uh, inundation of pornography and sex and sex miseducation, all that sort of stuff in the given society because there's always special interests are involved. Um, then you look at your society and you say, mm, what are we passing on to our children? So if you guys are going to give speeches here, I'm going to give mine too. Well, there we go. Uh, let me before I introduce Patrick, I just want to mention one one more thought here. <clears throat> that you know, Patrick and I have debated the issue of biological evolution. Uh, there's something that I don't think there's any proof of, and I don't believe it. But I do believe in moral evolution, and I think that the Bible does set the stage for the moral evolution of man over many millennia. And of course, it does it by defining the proper relationship between men and women between slave and master and, and whatnot, it's not that it endorses slavery at all. It actually set the stage for man to eventually abolish slavery uh, mm-hmm. by yeah. saying that yeah. slaves have rights and, and by saying yeah. that workers have rights and that by saying that women have rights in marriage, even though very wealthy men in the Bible had many wives, nevertheless, it set the rules for divorce. It, set the, it, it was the first uh, document that gave women the right to own property in the, in the book of Leviticus. And by doing that, God set the stage for man to eventually evolve on his own because also the Bible recognizes that man has free will and they can either choose good or bad. And as such, it kind of points you in the right direction. And I think 
That's why Western civilization in America is based philosophically, not necessarily theologically, on the, uh, Jude- the, the Judean Decalogue that's expressed at Sinai. It set the stage for modern morality and modern freedom and the ability of people to be free in the context of accepting those divine laws, not state-given laws. Now, the idea of of ending that and of creating polymorphous diversity, mm-hmm. that goes back to Adam and so Eve, of course. But, but it's always been there, and it's the idea of overthrowing the, the, um, the received wisdom of, of the millennia so that, um, in a sense, the state can ultimately grant rights when it chooses to and not. It's, it's, it's ruled by man versus God. I think that Whitaker Chambers put it best in his book, Witness, which is my personally my favorite book. He says yeah. it's a choice between God or man. Anyway, let me yeah. introduce yeah. Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Hi, thank Dr. you. Dr. Patrick. Hi, Dr. Patrick. <laughs> and hi, hi Dr. Judith. Um, mm-hmm. um, Judith, we asked you to come on today to talk about this article that you wrote, um, Release Huma Abedin's Security File. Ah, yes. Yes. Um, you want to give our um, our listeners a kind of a little short uh, praise of who she is and why why you think her security file needs to be released? Oh, right. Well, first I should say who, um, you know, Michelle Bachman is, was Congresswoman from Minnesota. And a Congresswoman from Minnesota had, uh, with, with uh, I think it was four other colleagues, yeah. written a request to, uh, to the appropriate authorities to say, uh, that um, she and they would like to make sure that uh, this this uh, Huma Abedin's uh, security uh, file had been appropriately um, had pro- been appropriately screened, and the reason and and this uh, Huma Abedin, Ms. Abedin, uh, was very important individual because she works, of course, as a press secretary. Originally was. Uh, involved in the in in as a press secretary for uh, working in her office for Hillary Clinton, but she is now uh, actually holds a very important position uh, with Hillary Clinton as an advisor and um, very close to all kinds of um, secure information or information that's critical to the security of this nation. So uh, since. Ms. Abedin, hope I'm saying her name correctly, uh, since Ms. Abedin um, was not only a practicing Muslim under the circumstances, we happen to be in some some trialy, some difficult situations right now with the whole uh, question of, of uh, Islam. Uh, since she was a practicing uh, Muslim and apparently uh, based upon the the data that was available to the uh, to the uh, Congress people, uh, her mother, an active person in the Muslim sisterhood, uh, a brother active in the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, a father active in the Muslim Brotherhood, and now later since since all this came out, apparently Ms. Abedin. Abedin. Uh, apparently, she also has has other connections with Islam that go beyond uh, the normal sort of uh, friendly relations. Since all this 
uh, had come to the fore. The question was, uh, was she asked these questions about her family connections prior to taking this position with Hillary Clinton? And uh, if not, uh, why not? And that was the essence of the letter that went out from these congresspeople, along with a whole group of other questions regarding um, other people in Islamic representatives in one way or another and organizations. But one of the people that they asked about was um, Ms. Abedin because of her close connection to Hillary Clinton and the possibility that there could be a conflict of interest between her practicing Muslim faith and uh, the interests of the United States. And so the question went out, you know, was she cleared? And that that resulted in a massive attack on, uh, on Congresswoman uh, Bachman, not so much on her other male colleagues, uh, who were just as involved as she was in asking this very legitimate question, in my view, but but on her. And um, I think the reason for the attacks on her should be quite interesting. Um, and she was attacked, as you know, by some GOP people, you know, who got uh, got on their high horses and said, how dare she day. suggest, you know, yeah, that, that, uh, that uh, Ms. Abedin had done anything wrong. But, but a congressman... Bachman and the rest of the uh, her colleagues, nobody suggested that she did anything wrong. What they said was, was she appropriately screened uh, for for these relationships? And if so, we need to know more about that. And to me, uh, as we are still, you know, standing here um, picking up the pieces from September 11th. Uh, and other kinds of of attacks that relate to our, our relationship to Islam, uh, that was a very legitimate and not only legitimate but responsible and uh, and appropriate question to raise. Well, th- this is a um, uh, a complex issue, and I, I took the time to to read uh, Congresswoman uh, Bachman's letter to uh, Keith Ellison and her letters to the um, Inspector Generals. Mm-hmm. And a, um, a very close friend of mine is also an informer inspector general, and I gave her a call and asked her what she thinks about this, too. Mm-hmm. So let, let me go through. And I should also point out that Congresswoman uh, Bachman is a member of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, so she was mm-hmm. in, she was very much within her right to, to do this kind of oversight. Okay. Um, and uh, you're, you're right. She, she was... Um, the recipient of much of the criticism, including from Senator McCain, um, for mm-hmm. this rather than the other four members of Congress. <clears throat> There's a couple of points here. Uh, first of all, um, and this is not to denigrate her um, her request. I think her request is quite valid. Uh, okay. As a me- as a member of the Select Committee, this is what she's supposed to do. Uh, right. She her timing was bad. She uh, she did it in the run up to a a very partisan presidential election. I think if this had come uh, a year ago, it probably would have gone well under the the radar and been taken care of uh, much more quietly. Uh, but by mm-hmm. doing it at this particular point, she whether or not it was intended to be, she opens herself up to um, criticism that this was another Republican attack. In fact, in her letter, she actually. Uh, makes reference to dangerous activities regarding national security of the Obama administration, which, whether she meant it or not, is a Republican mm-hmm. talking point because they're trying to undermine his record 
uh, as a uh, strong in national security. So right. I think her timing was wrong. It should have been a year, a year and a half earlier. Secondly, she's probably the wrong source because, what, what, fair or not, uh, she has been accused of making uh, many off-the-cuff and uh, totally inaccurate accusations and statements. And as a result of that, and whether it's deserved it or not, I'm not making a judgment of that, as, as a mm-hmm. result of that, she has become something of, the, of, a, of a character on uh, late-night television. And um, her credibility, even though she is a member of this committee, is not good. Mm-hmm. It had come from mm-hmm. another member of the committee, a, a man mm-hmm. or woman, doesn't matter, it mm-hmm. might have stuck uh, even better. So I think that that's part of what the problem here. Now, to the, to the request. Yeah. Obviously, it's the, the job of the inspector generals to make these kinds of, of, um, of investigations. And interestingly enough, I'm currently reading Bailout. Which oh. Is, right. Uh-huh. And the author of Bailout, who was the inspector general for TARP, is going to be on our, on our uh, program next week. So we'll have a... But he makes a point in there, in that one of the things he learned was when he was appointed inspector general in the Department of Treasury is that there are three kinds of dogs. There are yeah. mouth dogs, which means that you don't do anything that the, that the secretary of the agency you're working for doesn't like. There okay. are friendly dogs, uh, which means that you do a few things, that you really do your job, but you don't do anything that's too far off the mark. And there are junkyard okay. dogs, which means you really, really do your job and you probably get fired. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, hey, hey, I, I cannot agree with Inspector him general, more. Right? Yes, well right. done. Okay, and I recommend the book, and, and you should listen in when we have him on the show. Um, <laughs> as a result, most inspector generals are friendly dogs. Yes. Now, which means that her letter to them was asking them to be junkyard dogs, and as um, the author of this, uh, Bailout pointed out, the minute you ask inspector generals to be junkyard dogs, they find lots of ways to attack you for uh, upsetting the apple cart. So that a little bit absolutely, of that yeah. But she's asking him to do his job, and she yeah. may have asked him at the wrong time. But what she's asking him, and the rest of her colleagues were asking, was to do your job. Exactly. That's what you're hired for. That's what we pay you for, and that is what most of the American public believe that you're going to do. And by yes. not doing your job and by being one of those little friendly dogs, you can endanger our country and my well, life. You're, you're exactly right. And, of course, that was the, the – and, and he, she got the response from the IGs that, uh, that everybody else who tries to do their job does. Now, there are a couple mm-hmm. other points here, though. Um, that but that doesn't make her wrong, right, Patrick? No, no, Patrick? I didn't say anything. All right, didn't. good. No, yeah, yeah, not, we're, not we're together on this. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, develop the context here. Within cool. her letter to Keith, to, to Keith, the Congressman uh, Ellison, she pointed right. out that the mother, brother, and deceased family, uh, deceased father, her, um, mm-hmm. are connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. But then when she goes through the details of the connection, it turns out it's three levels away. Now, three levels away is somewhat tenuous. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong and it should be looked at. I'm saying it's somewhat mm-hmm. tenuous. So mm-hmm. the language of saying that they're connected to the Muslim Brotherhood and then the facts that she cites to that 
don't jibe, and that gave the IGs the opportunity to say that she's trying to be partisan, she's trying to make a case where there isn't one, and that, as a matter of fact, we could find connections between various Republican members of Congress and the Muslim Brotherhood that are only two Which they should away. do, which but, they absolutely should do, because if we are in a situation where we recognize that we have a nation and a belief system that really has been very clear about their desire to rid the world of us, then if those, if the IG can find those connections with the Republicans, they better ought to do that, shouldn't well, they? It, That's their job, and well, they should no, be doing their job. Judith, it's not. The IGs don't investigate Congress. Now, what I would suggest in, in this matter is that rather than continue this at a high decibel level, which she, which she is doing, which means that mm-hmm. she gets pushed back from all various sides and all various parties, yeah. she should ask that she should send a, a request to the to the IG, the State Department, that okay. the, the personnel records that she wants to look at be delivered to her committee in camera, so that her committee can review those but not be made public. And the, point, the reason I say that is, is because mm-hmm. there are, as, as you probably well know, there are numerous laws preventing the personnel records of federal employees from, from being mm-hmm. revealed publicly. And if we okay. violate those laws, of course, we won't be able to hire anybody at all because but for right. lots of various reasons. But I think that she does have a right to look at them in camera. If okay. In investigating them in camera, she finds that the IG of the State Department did not do her job, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. he's supposed to, then the IG should be called before the committee and asked why not without revealing the details because he is still private records and asked and asked what the procedure is for investigating these kinds of comments, which would give which would give Congress the oversight over the IG that it's supposed to have and turning oh. it in from a friendly dog to a junkyard dog, which is what it ought to be. No, 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 that's lovely. I think it's I think it's great. I don't have any problems with that. And as a matter of fact, I would call her office and and suggest that exactly as you put it. I mean, I think that sounds fine. The issue is to get to the truth of the matter. And uh if there is uh if there is a problem uh, we need to find out. And if there is no problem, if 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 the lady is as clean as a whistle in this regard, although she's married to that fellow, what what's his name, Wiener, but let's just put that aside, shall well, we? That, that that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with her. Maybe no, <laughs> no, except her choice. But never mind. You know, I mean, hey, we all do strange things in life. So okay. So um you know then then I look uh, Chuck I think that Pat's you know I don't have any problem with that the point being mm-hmm. Michelle Bachman did her job whether or not she should have done it sooner whether or not people use that to exploit whatever it is that they're going to say about her you know that's that's par for the course but she Chuck, was doing her job I'd like to make Two more, one more comment on this, uh, and that is, sure. uh, if she goes ahead and does that, I think she should wait till after the election, and and of course, and if um, President Obama is not reelected, then it's a moot question because there'll be a new Secretary of State, and Huma Abedin will not be there. And, well, that's true. And secondly, I think that the issue of infiltration of, of institutions in the United States by forces that seek. Uh, to do harm to this country is a real issue and does deserve to be looked at, and that includes the Muslim Brotherhood. Even though they have pointed out publicly they can't even infiltrate the Egyptian government, much less ours, you would expect them to say that. 
Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, well, I certainly wouldn't expect them to say that they have infiltrated right. and that they're running things. Right. I mean, that would be a little silly. Right. Uh, you know, and, and no one's accused issue. the Muslim Brotherhood of being stupid, as far as I know. Uh, I haven't heard that one. So, you know, it makes sense to me, certainly. I No, I, I think that uh, I think the end camera is a perfectly fine idea. I don't know about waiting until after Obama, because quite frankly, if the concern is that, as she indicated, that, that, uh, that this administration has been partial to uh, Muslim interests, then, you know, that's something she wants to pursue. She wants to make that point. If that's the case, then she should. Uh, she should make that point. Uh, people may disagree with it, and people, you know, may may say, or uh, and some people may just say, "Why do you say that?" Which would mean that she would have to explain it. She and her colleagues, or whoever it is, and I, there's never a problem with people bringing their their arguments out onto the table. There's just never a problem no, with that. No, of course not. But it, you have to ask the question: Does she want to to get to the truth, or does she want to? Criticize the president. Now the two are well, necessarily I don't think different. That the, but if she wants to get to the truth, no, I think doing it now think before the election is going to make it more difficult. No, it's a, of course there's a political element to it. There's a political element to Harry Reid, these uh, Senate uh, majority leader, claiming that Mitt Romney hasn't paid taxes in ten years too. I mean, this is a political season, and that's how everything that's done by Congress has a political element. If it doesn't, I'd wonder why. But the thing that interests me is how it is that a sitting congresswoman elected by the people of her district asking for information from the government doesn't get it. That's troubling to me. Mm-hmm, if a mm-hmm. congressperson asks for information, they should have that information immediately. That's Not what if there's elect- federal law uh, protecting that information. And, and is r- there federal quick, law protecting this information? Yeah, there is. R- real quick, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station USA Network, and our affiliates. You can call in 424-675-6806, or you can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com, and we're talking to Dr. Judith Reisman, and we're talking about the possibility of Muslim Brotherhood infiltration into the State Department. Go ahead. I had to do that, Chuck. Sorry. If there is a federal law that prevents a congressperson from getting information from our own government, First of all, I'd like to see what that is. It should be challenged. It should be changed. Congress makes the laws, so Congress obviously must have made this federal law to prevent itself from getting information. It's, uh, be- it's, it's a law that, that, uh, that protects the personnel records of federal employees from being released publicly. Uh, but that's not different. privately. That's a whole different. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a completely that's, different this situation. This is a congressman asking yeah. for information about a federal employee and, you know, uh, to my way of thinking, the Congress person is elected to represent us. They have the highest authority in the land. If they mm-hmm. want information about someone in government, then, you know, it, they should have that. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter mean they publicize it. You know, Senator no, no, Joseph no, McCarthy and- didn't publicize his hearings either for the same reason. But he was entitled to the information he was asking for. That's what Congress is supposed to do. They're supposed to investigate it that, at, at bare minimum. The employees who are paid by American people to work for us. And and let me make it very, very clear. There's nothing in any of those letters that were sent by Congresswoman Bachman and her colleagues. She certainly does not say, please send this to me, information to me, because I would like to report it. You know, no. There's not even the slightest indication 
that she she knows her she's a lawyer and she knows what's you know what she's supposed to do or not do. She certainly would not be simply handing out the reports to the local Washington Post or whoever it is. This was so in camera per se would be understood. I mean, she was requesting that information as were her colleagues who were not attacked by the way. Um, yep. Yeah, they have. They have um, been actually. If you look at those, oh uh, well, okay. Oh uh, well, I guess I guess she really just gets. Yeah, but she. And she who's gets doing the, the attacking? I mean, uh, to my way of thinking, that that's uh, an outrage. That, uh, critics. Well, that's that's so so authoritarian they are. You know, yeah. if, if we is. can't have it's elected outrageous. officials who are in government mm-hmm. simply make sure that our public employees who work for us, who are fed by us, who are clothed by us are who they say they are and that they're being proper, we understand who they are, their background is, whether they have right-wing or left-wing connections, then then we have a lot of problems on our hands. I mean, this is, you know, uh, if if somebody works for a private company, you know, the company can ask them information about their background, I suppose. I mean, if, I guess. I mean, or at least uh, they can monitor their, their, their behavior while they're employees if they're betraying the company in some way. Giving trade secrets to the other to the comp- competition. Well, that's no, you have a right. The private sector that has nothing to do with government. No, but I'm saying, it, it, but if that's in the private sector, at least you'd expect people who are in positions of influence inside the government who are influencing public policy that we have a right to understand who they are. And by the way, Huma Abedin has more than just those those connections to the Muslim Brotherhood. Apparently, even recently, she was a counsel to a uh, think tank that has extensive connections right. to the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, and this yeah. is her, not, not her relative. Letter, and it was also pointed out in Michelle Bachman's letter, too, that the connection between that think tank and the Muslim Brotherhood was also two levels away. And what Bachman's do you mean two levels? How do you determine that, that she, she She worked with a person who worked with a person who worked with the Brotherhood. And also, I'd like to point out that she didn't ask for personal records. She asked for a multi-department investigation into potential Muslim Brotherhood infiltration into the United States government, mm-hmm. including uh, the release of personnel records. And, and this is the case of a, of a member of Congress trying to tell an agency what to do. And, of no. course, that's, well, there's separation of powers problems there, too. Well, No, I, I, I don't think yeah, there so. Are. No, no I mean, a congressman has a right to investigate a, 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 a an executive department agency. That, they do it all the agency, time, but not to order the IG of, a, of an agency to conduct a specific action. That well, they can, what they maybe powers. what they what you could have done was even more publicly visible. They could have held a hearing and brought the AG in for testimony and asked him questions about it. Uh, that's what now I mean. that but makes I think, a lot of sense to me. Yeah, but I think that do. could have been avoided by simply asking for the records. Which is what she was trying to do. Yeah. And again, again, I also think that, quite frankly, uh, the the hysteria on the part of McCain and various other people jumping up and down, you know, how dare she, you know, so this is a sweet, lovely lady. Nobody's talking about the lady's personality, you know. Either she's a professional or she's not. Either she's, you know, serves in this, this role with Hillary Clinton, or she doesn't. We're not asking what she looks like or what kind of clothes she wears. We're talking about uh, her her background and whether she was whether she was appropriately screened. As I said in my article, when I was working for the United States Department of Justice before I took my grant, before I got my grant, they sat me down and they had gone through every member of my two layers and six layers yeah. down. Yeah, 
and they knew what what events I had gone to, and they uh, the only thing they didn't have was was a record of me singing or something. So you know that that's standard operating procedure, and uh, the fact that uh, that um, Ms. Abedin, uh has the kinds of connections that she has had, and in levels or not levels. Uh, should should really be something that is very publicly discussed and very publicly uh, debated because uh, you know lives depend upon the American position, the 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 devotion of each individual to whom we are. Um, you know, I know it used to be years ago. I mean, when when uh, Kennedy was running for president, you know, it was a big issue about who is he going to serve, the Pope, or you know, because he was Catholic the Pope, or the United States? Well, these are critical issues. You ask those questions. They become part of the public dialogue. You do not sweep them under the rug and pretend that they're unimportant, especially. I agree completely. Yeah. But, but uh, you're misquoting Senator McCain, and I have his quote in front of you. It's, it's oh, quote, okay. These allegations about Huma and the report from which they are drawn are nothing less than an unwarranted and unfounded attack on an honorable citizen, a dedicated American, and a loyal public servant. Okay, he didn't say anything about how pretty she was or any of that. He didn't say anything about that. But he said he has worked with her and that she's a loyal public servant and highly competent. But that's not his issue. Uh, The the question has been raised. Was she screened? The question has been raised. That's a legitimate question, I agree. Yeah, yeah. How does McCain know? I mean, look, look. He's worked with her. Yeah, but did he look at her personnel file? Did did you read my article? Come on. We have had so many people who uh, who have been exposed as spies, you know, in the United States of America that that come out of situations where they have been very highly placed, right next to the to the President of the United States. Everybody worked with them and everybody assumed that they were absolutely working in our interest, but they weren't. They were also working in the interest of the Communist Party. Russia or 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 Germany, depending, and that was going on in England Usually at the same both time at too. At the same time, yeah. No, I mean that, that's right, Judith. I mean, of course you can't know. It's a it's a. I mean, there's nothing like that going on today. I would argue. I mean, that was unprecedented, especially during the Hitler-Stalin pact when they were working for both Hitler and Stalin. Sure. Um, I don't think that's happening today. I mean, I just want to be clear. I don't think it's that bad. Well, Hitler's dead, and so is Stalin. Yeah, and I just think Good that thing. movement of of Americans who are sympathetic to that kind of thing isn't that severe anymore. I don't think that we have as many people who would go to that length where they actually would work for a, a foreign, you know, would become agents of a foreign power like that. Well, I'm glad you think that, and I appreciate your thoughts, but I wouldn't necessarily agree. I wouldn't yeah. want to risk my nation's safety on my assumption that well, I don't, uh, that, I don't that therefore there say we shouldn't be vigilant. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Okay. You know, they, the Muslim Brotherhood, by its own definition, has tried to make inroads into the United States. I mean, there were groups like CARE that even mm-hmm. up until recently has been the, the go-to group for the media when it came to Islamic issues. And we know that they're a branch of Hamas. So, you know, they, yeah, I, so. I, I'm not, yeah, I mean, and that's according to the congressional testimony of Charles Schumer and Barbara Boxer, both of yeah. whom said that mm-hmm. in oh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, Congresswoman Boxman uh, unfortunately didn't help her case when, when in the original letters, and I read her original letters to the IGs, she mm-hmm. claimed that their agencies had been uh, deeply penetrated by the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood.
and offered no evidence of that. And I think that using that kind of language um, did elevate this into something of a conspiracy theory story, whether or not it's true. I think she could have helped herself by saying well, there are reports and indications that there is some mm-hmm. influence of the Muslim Brotherhood, and we request that we that you use your your resources to determine that and keep us informed. Unfortunately, okay. by going That's public nice. with no, I'm glad she said that, Patrick. And now there should be a congressional investigation well, to see how much it, how much infiltration is taking place. Is it? The fact that she said it will make it less likely there will be because well, she, no, she should she call for it so as a sitting congresswoman. She should call for a congressional investigation behind closed doors so that people's reputations are protected, mm-hmm. where people mm-hmm. will be called in to testify with regard to whether or not or to what degree there has mm-hmm. been an infiltration by the Muslim Brotherhood into well, both that's my recommendation. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. That's, yeah, that's that my makes recommendation. Sense. But I don't think that's yeah. going to happen because of what happened to Senator Joe McCarthy. Since then, there's been no kind of investigation like that because nobody wants to stick their neck out and have it chopped off like his was. Yeah, they all want to be, as you said, the the lap dog they want to be or happy the friendly dog. Yeah, exactly. the happy dog. dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, By the way, that book is very indicting of the Obama administration, Patrick. I'm reading it also. Uh-huh. Um, it's also right. pretty, uh, pretty nasty towards the Bush administration. Yeah, but he in came fact, in during the last weeks of Bush. His entire term was during Obama. The last and his main, the main villain of the book is Geithner. Uh, and and and, light, and rightly so, but I, w- I would point out, and I don't know if, you, if you've read this at all, Judith, but the, uh, he ran into the exact same problem. Uh, he, it was pointed out to him immediately that when he tried to uh, start looking at the uh, the flow of TARP money to foreign banks, the, the State Department, which was the Bush State Department, was mm-hmm. a major obstacle to getting that information. The State Department has has a long history, and, I, and in my Ph.D. Uh, research, I shadowed the uh, the Deputy Secretary of State for two days for, for communications and sat in on mm-hmm. many of those meetings. I can't say what went on mm-hmm. in those meetings, but one of the things that did go on in those meetings is how they could thwart other agencies that got in their way. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that we're in our last 30 seconds of the hour. Too bad. I was going to agree with you, Pat, as far as I know, that goes. Pat, we, all, we all are on the same side generally yeah. on, on today. Yeah. Um, except maybe the French Revolution piece. Uh, Dr. Oh. Reisman, tell us how people yes. can get your excellent book, Sexual Sabotage. Oh, please uh, go to my website, drjudithreisman.com. Well, you won't get the book there, though. Um, but you can get the book from WorldNet Daily, um, yep. just, you know, .com, or from Amazon if you must, but WorldNet Daily is better. And um, and do read it and do contact me and let me know what's going on in your lives when you've read it because a lot of people do. Thanks a lot, Dr. Judith Reisman. We'll talk soon. Good to good to be with you guys again. All right, Bye-bye. we'll take a brief break. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We'll be right back. We walked around the northeast part of town the other night I really didn't mind I can't quite remember what we did or what we talked about But I'm sure I didn't mind and All those things you do for me are so sweet, baby And you do them all the time I was thinking there was Something new to try Let's take a train to Chicago 
Andra Suki from her new album, Little Heart. Andra Suki is going to be with us at 2.30 during our Music Friday segment. But right now, it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick and your host, the great Chuck Morris. Thank you, Patrick. Hour number two of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're welcome to join us, by the way, 424-675-6806. That number again is 424-675-6806. Or you can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. Patrick, uh, I want to bring up a topic that is in line with something I've been developing over the past week, and I want to tread carefully here, if that's okay with you. Of course. That that is my contention that the predominant wealth in this country, and in the world even, is controlled by people on the left, Um, and that includes the top levels of all the biggest corporations And when I say biggest, I mean corporations that generally are international in nature at this point, um, and that as you go down the line, you end up getting more conservatives coming in. And and that is, and and again, I want to be very careful here, but it is the family of the guest that we had on the program yesterday, that being Philip Warburg. Um, And Philip Warburg, and they are great people, I'm not in any way disparaging here, he mentioned that his grandfather was Paul Warburg, who was one of the main architects of the Federal Reserve System and who was the first chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank in 1913. The Warburg family in its day, which was uh, 19th century, early 20th century, was one of the richest families in the world. I mean, they, they were very much in the same, part, almost you know, reg, regular partners with the, uh, with the Rothschilds. And they were part of this, uh, you know, this so-called our crowd uh, group of families that that had residents in the Upper East Side in New York and in other places, who were of German Jewish background. They included the Lehman Brothers. They included the original Goldmans and Sachses, who make up Goldman Sachs. Uh, the Seligmans. Um, there was a whole list of the the Schiffs. You know, Jacob Schiff was a big player. And they were extremely rich, and they were also very, very liberal by any standard, um, and still are. Now, I don't think Philip Warburg is that rich, because, I mean, when you go down the generations, the the money tends to dissipate. But I'm sure he's extremely wealthy. I'm sure he can afford much more cars in his driveway than Mitt Romney, let's put it that way. And um, But let's not – I don't want to have anyone make a mistake and think that this was some kind of a Jewish thing either, because – these Jewish families were not as rich as the non-Jewish families that were around back then also, like the uh, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Brown Brothers, the Harrimans, you know, the Whitneys, you know, some of the big Yankee families from originally from New England, like the, uh, the, you know, the Cabots and the Lodges. And they were also totally, almost virtually totally on the left, liberal families, liberal people, especially the Rockefellers. Now, you obviously had, every so often in a generation, a renegade who would become conservative. And one example of that was one of the sons of the, of the Rothschilds, that being Edmund Rothschild, who, on a trip to Palestine in the turn of the century, became a Zionist, which was unusual because these Jewish families were very anti-Zionist. And he became religious. He, uh, I, I guess he had a conversion of some sort. He became Orthodox. And he uh, he started to use his wealth to buy property for Jews in Palestine. 
left his money in a trust, which became the Jewish National Fund, which to this day buys land in Palestine for Jews. So, you know, that's but that's the exception. The Koch brothers are an example of an exception because their father was a left-wing, um, you know, multi-billionaire and part of this establishment. I don't know if they go way back, but, you know, you, you end up uh, with uh, renegades. Sorry, left-wing? Why, how do you... Well, he was I, 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 he was doing business with Stalin, and he was, you know, into socialistic. Uh, you know, if you if you take a look at who he was, I think he was definitely on the left. And and the same thing with uh, Richard Mellon He comes from big liberal wealth, going way back, and he was a renegade. He became conservative, and that's why we know his name. I mean, that's why these people are different. But the the big money in these families, and again, I'm not talking about Jewish here because most of these people were not. They are what I would euphemistically call the Eastern Seaboard liberal establishment. I mean, these people were were the the liberal-leaning families. I mean, uh, these were the families that financed both the Bolshevik Revolution and Hitler. I mean, they they believed these to be progressive socialist experiments is why they did it. And they were, by the way. And I think that this goes to my contention, Patrick, and I'm sure these people were heads of corporations. There's no question about that. You know, Chase Manhattan, you know, all of it. That they were liberals. And again, I'm not bringing this up to disparage them. I think that they did many good things, especially in the area of philanthropy. I am simply bringing it up to illustrate my point that at least 60, if not 70 or 80 percent of the biggest wealth concentrations not only in this country, but probably in the world, are controlled and have always been controlled by people who are at least left of center, people who are liberals. Well, I wish that were true. Um, I've got a couple of uh, comments there. Why don't we uh, continue this after we welcome our listeners from the radio land in? Sure. Okay. Let's welcome aboard our beloved listeners at WWPR AM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, Blog Talk Radio, our online partners, and of course Cyber Station USA Radio Network, our host station, and Twit and uh, Stitches, which is our app. You can listen to the program on your cell phone. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. This is Chuck Morse and uh, my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, uh, we're talking about my contention that uh, the predominant amount of wealth in the world is controlled by the left, always has been. Um, first of all, I. I think we have different ideas of what liberal means, and I mm-hmm. think your definition is uh, is not my definition, nor I, and I don't think your definition is the definition of the of most people in in today's political uh, uh, discussions. Um, I think you have a tendency to equate liberal with international, and particularly when it comes to corporations, and that that simply don't equate at all. In fact, the progressive establishment right now is is fighting hard against the internationalist tendencies of american corporations doing everything it can to to prevent them from uh, from sending jobs money etc abroad uh and we uh and, and but so we have a different definition of what liberal is and i think that's one reason why uh we disagree on this the second reason uh we disagree on this is that you have said in the past that you think that and you just said it 80% of the Corporations and the um, and the executives of those corporations are liberal. Um, you haven't defined what your universe is, so I don't know. That's eighty percent of what? Is that eighty percent of five companies, or is that eighty percent of a thousand companies? I I don't know. And and uh, you haven't uh, given me the 
the the 80% that is, um, I, I can I've got a list here of the top corporate uh, donors in front of me, and um, it'd be very difficult to say that any of these were liberals. Uh, the Adelson, um, uh, the Las Vegas Sands, the Contran Corporation, a very uh, um, a conservative Republican-leaning defense contractor, Perry Holmes, which which uh, major Republican donor in Texas. Goldman Sachs, uh, which I, which did give money to the president in the last uh, election, but is not this time, and on and on down the line. So I think that's the second problem: is that is that you haven't defined what your universe is that you're talking about 80 percent of, and then you haven't named the 80 percent the, the companies that you say are that 80 percent. So I'm sitting here saying I don't I don't agree with what Chuck calls a liberal, and I have no idea what his 80 percent refers to. And Chuck, wealth holders and Sorry. companies. That's uh, you, okay. Yeah, you, you you cut out for a second. What what did you? I missed your. your I'm comment. saying eighty percent, Patrick, or seventy or eighty percent of the top one percent of those who hold wealth in this country and the world, both in terms of personal wealth and also those who are top level uh, corporate people. It, is that a thousand people, a million people? Um, Whatever the top one percent is. I mean, what did the Occupy Wall Street mean by top one percent? Uh, actually, it's about 495,000 people in this Well, country. that's who I, I mean the same thing as the Occupy Wall Street mean, people mean, okay. except my contention is that they are probably 70 to 80 percent liberal. Now, let me address both of your points. Okay. Firstly, on the issue of internationalism, that has always been a liberal idea going all the way back to Jefferson, actually, but really Jackson is the one that got that underway, and it's been conservatives who have opposed it. Um, it's only recently that le unwitting left-wingers like yourself have gotten involved in it. When I first started talking to you, you weren't that particularly interested in it. I think I actually brought you to this position, that, there, that the country should have regulations that protect American industry with tariffs and that uh, protect American uh, capital against uh, interference by foreign capital and international corporations dumping you know, capital inside the country and going to China. This has been a liberal agenda. I understand that now, in recent decades, you have some unwitting liberals who are against that, and I'm glad they are. But you have to understand the people at more sophisticated levels who are pushing internationalism, both economic and political, that, that they are liberal, that they don't believe in, they think that sovereignty is an anachronism and that borders are prejudice, a form of prejudice, that they want to have total access to the world in terms of both economy and politics. I mean, it's it's been a part of – I mean, you could take a look at this philosophically. It's certainly a basic tenet of socialism, you know, you know the um, dictatorship of the proletariat leading to the one-world collectivism. I mean, it's, a, it's totally alien to conservatives. Conservatives don't go by that. Now, that doesn't mean that some conservatives haven't jumped into it for business reasons. But the predominant big players remain people that would, by conventional definition, be defined as liberal. As far as donors are concerned, the donors, as we've talked about, are going to give money to whoever they think is going to win. They're not ideological donors. Now, if, a, if an individual endorses a candidate, then they're ideological. And we went over the list of those who have endorsed Barack Obama this time around. 
But if they're giving money, I mean, I can speak to this as, as somebody who's going to form a candidate. They don't care what your ideology is. They want to know what you, how many troops you have on the ground. I mean, they want to know, you know, who's uh, running your, uh, your media campaign. You know, they want to see evidence that you're going to win, that, 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 you know, how much who else is giving you money because they're buying influence. Look, Dave Johnson agreed with me on this, Patrick. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's not about ideology. They don't care about ideology, and these people are not conservatives. You know, when, it, when you take a look at their ideology, they're just interested in being on the right side. And as far as Mitt Romney is concerned, they don't view Mitt Romney, you know, it, people who are sophisticated understand that Mitt Romney is not really a conservative. I mean, he's leaning, you know, he's slightly right of center. And in spite of attempts by Obama and his people to publicly portray him as being extremely conservative and out of the mainstream, which is politics, I mean, they tried to do the same thing to Reagan, and it didn't work. They did it to they did they tried to do it to Goldwater, and it did work because he was probably more conservative. But Romney's not that type, and everyone knows it. And the attempts to try to portray him in that way haven't really flown because it's just not the case. And the big donors, who are I would again argue liberal, they also understand that Mitt Romney is not going to be a super conservative. You know, they realize he's going to be kind of a slightly right of center, but that if he can win, then they're going to get what they want. And Mitt Romney himself has made dog whistles to them to let them know know that he knows how to play their game. Oh, yes, he has, and you're right. And I would agree with you that Mitt Romney is, is not a, um, a Tea Party-type conservative. Right. Uh, he's pushed himself over in that direction in order to get the, uh, exactly. the nomination, and now he's uh, – He's not there, but you made a lot of points there, and uh, I, I respond to them. First of all, we're not unwitting by any means. Uh, there are some um, uh, liberals and progressives who are unwitting, just like there are some um, uh, conservatives and Tea Party members who are also unwitting. But for the most part, we have the, the uh, international agenda, and the knowledge of it has evolved uh, through the progressive movement, as we have seen corporations uh, take advantage of and try to um, denigrate the uh, sovereignty of various nations, uh, that we have pushed back against that because what we see is that they try to, to, to spread the, uh, a race to the bottom around the world to, to pit one group of workers against another, to pit one group of suppliers against another, et cetera, so that they can reap more profits and leave the rest of us with the bills. So we have evolved. We're not unwitting. It's a very specific evolution. Um, secondly, the, um, uh, the corporations, uh, you're, you're right about that. The, the, the corporations have... Um, have become more internationalist, but not not because of ideological reasons, but simply because they want to um, eliminate uh, national boundaries and national regulations. They want to inter internationalize their markets. They want to internationalize the movement of capital, and they don't want nations getting in the way. So they have decided that it's time to dilute sovereignty, and there is a huge uh, movement to do that. Unfortunately, the Council on Foreign Relations is part of that. A reduction of sovereignty, but that that's, that has nothing to do with communism, socialism, or anything like that. It's it's a move to internationalize markets and supplies and get rid of regulations. Um, whether or not um, the attacks on uh, the attempt by the Obama administration to make uh, Mr. Romney seem too conservative or successful or not, we shall see. I do note, however, that in the states in which the Obama campaign has been running, its ads to that effect. Uh, the uh, Governor Romney's uh, ratings have, have dropped uh, quite a bit. 
I would also point out that business people are endorsing uh, Romney right and left. In fact, he just released a, uh, a press release with the, uh, the support from 48 Colorado business leaders uh, as endorsing him. He's doing this on a state-by-state basis. And um, uh, he will continue to, to, to do that, uh, and I'm sure that uh, the president will, too. But uh, Mr. Romney yeah. needs to be picking up business endorsements as fast Small as he can. Small-time businesses. Not, not, they're not the big, big international players. And I think what's most telling is that the, ideolo- the people who are openly ideologically left in the big corporations who did give a lot of money to Obama in 08, they're holding off this year. It's not because they disagree with him ideologically, but it's because they don't know if he's going to win. What, what, and, what people uh, would those be? There's, I mean, this has been all over the papers. Can you give some names? No, I can't. But it's okay. been the New York Times did a front piece on it last week with a big picture. This has been Patrick. You have to read some papers. I, I read two a day. This you do well. You might need to read them actually, sit down and concentrate because this has been in the news now for months that Obama is not getting the big donations from the same donors that gave him money last in 08 because they don't think he's going to win or because they just are reluctant. It's not that they don't agree with him. That, that's this true. You're right. There, there no, has thank been you. Thank you very much. Endorsements. But I, I, uh, but I also and money. Know They're not they, giving him money this time I also around. Know he's, he's, a very few uh, progressive business leaders uh, who have given him money. Yes, but I'm talking about insurance being one of them. That's right. But I'm talking about compared to 08 when he got more money from Wall Street than any candidate in history, these people are not doing it this time around, and they are liberals, and no, yet not. they're not doing it. Yes, they are, no, but they're we not doing on the it because of liberal. No, we don't. Yeah, we these, you think these people are Christians and are conservative? You think they're against abortion? I mean, give me. A, you really think these people are conservatives? I think they're so, socially progressive and uh, fiscally very conservative. No, I think that they're fiscally conservative when it comes to other liberal when it comes to other people's businesses, <laughs> but when it comes to their own, they're conservative. Yes, um, and that's typical of liberals, by the way. No, but it's Patrick, no, that's the, no conservatives are fairly consistent on that. They want to have less regulation for everybody. the The fact is that Obama is getting. And by the way, which states are, are is is Romney dropping in? I haven't seen that. Uh, I saw a news piece last night that said in the five major swing states, uh, I, I remember Ohio being one of them and Florida being, being one of them, that uh, Obama, yeah. the Obama uh, has, has gone ahead of him in, in polling. Now, and course, which, right and which summer poll doesn't mean anything at this point. Yeah, which poll said that? I, I can't quote you the specific Yeah, I can quote it. It was, it, the the pu- news, it, was, uh, it was the Quinnipiac poll. Okay. They're, the ones, they're the same people that said that um, – that uh, Martha Coakley was ten points ahead of Scott Brown. They interview. They they apparently they they tend to poll Democrats. Anyways, that so I mean, if you want to believe that, then great. I think it's swiftly by the graveyard. Well, right now I, I, don't, I, I don't pay attention to any of those polls because we're not nobody else is. No, I think the polls show a lot, actually. Uh, anyway, Patrick, look, my my point is that the the whole agenda of internationalism both economic and political, is a liberal agenda. That you're right that some liberals, and I would say they're unwitting, have taken the more conservative position in recent decades, which is that we should put America first and we should make sure that uh, companies are investing in America and keeping capital in this country, not allowing allowing it to go overseas and not allowing foreign companies to dump products here. That has been a fight that conservatives have been fighting for centuries. And, and liberals are some, fighting it now, too. 
Yeah, some are now, but again, I would say that they're, you know, the reason I say they're unwitting is because they are actually, you know, the the, the more sophisticated liberals know that uh, the agenda is internationalism in every respect, that, um, you know, and the Council on Foreign Relations does reflect that. And it is a liberal idea, the idea that big combines of capital and, you know, should basically work in tandem with those who seek international order. I mean, that's if anybody, even any cursory reading of foreign affairs, you walk away with that. I mean, that's a basic. Uh, just and as again, a point I'm of, not... Just as a what? point of fact, um, the polling that I mentioned was actually from real clear politics. Uh, polls taken be, uh, up to uh, yesterday. And it's an average of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight national polls, including your favorite, Rasmussen. And they have um, Obama up by... Uh, uh, between two and ten points in the swing states, and you can see that in real clear politics today. Uh, now, your particular favorite polling organization, Rasmussen Tracking, has Romney up by four. Everybody else has uh, Obama up, with the exception of CBS uh, New York Times poll, which has Romney up by one. The average is uh, Obama up by 2.7 in, in the past week in the swing states. Real clear politics? Yeah, real clear politics. They, they do an average of all of the major polls every day. Well, I mean, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I mean, you, each poll is done differently. Some of these polls are like the Rasmussen poll, where they actually interview not, you know, likely voters as opposed to just registered voters. Well, well so do many other of the polls, other polls too. Is it? Uh, so do many of the other polls too. But no, I, think I don't think. If you want I think to see a they, list of all what of all the polls have said, Rasmussen has that whole list there. Two of them have Romney ahead. The other eight of them, six of them, have uh, Obama ahead of the swing states. Yeah, but I don't think that it's going. He hasn't increased. He was up ahead in certain of those states all along, but not by much. In fact, yeah. in Pennsylvania, his lead has dropped since uh, earlier this year. Okay. Well, like I say, this is going to go up and down and up and down. Yeah, but I mean, those that that hasn't really changed that much. If anything, his he's ahead in these very liberal states, but the lead has the shrunk states, slightly. Not liberal states. We're only talking about the five swing states. Yeah, but those generally are liberal states. You know, Pennsylvania. I mean, these are states that generally vote uh, Democratic. And in Pennsylvania, I think his lead has shrunk from 10 points earlier this year to maybe about three now, three or four. So, yeah, he's ahead there, but you have to take a look at it in, in context. I mean, you have to take a look at this in terms of what has been the trend over the past maybe three months, six months, nine months. That's true. Uh, that, that's and in true. that sense, those leads have shrunk. Uh, that's true. Uh, it's also true that Obama has been spending a lot more money in advertising than uh, than Governor Romney, too. Pennsylvania, right. it's 53 for Obama, 42 for um, um, uh, Romney. 53 it's, for Obama in yeah. Pennsylvania? Which poll yeah, is that? I'm looking at the morning call, and this is a local poll run in that state. Right, and how do they how do they do their polling? Oh, you know what? They, they, they uh, contracted with, with Quinnipiac. And right, oh, there, right. Okay. CBS News and the New York Times taken July 24 to 30 telephone interviews with 1,000 likely voters in, in Pennsylvania. Well, actually, and and what did they come up with? Likely voters. Uh, in Pennsylvania, they came up with 48% for the president, 44% for the governor. Well, that has shrunk for Romney yeah. because yeah, he was 10 has. points right. ahead uh -huh. in uh, just three months ago, I think, or three, three to six months ago. 
Anyway, Patrick, I, I think that generally, I mean, look, I do think that, that Obama is probably going to win yeah. because he is the incumbent. But we'll see, you know. Yep, we shall. Uh, I mean, it's certainly an important election. It's, it's a choice between two very different approaches to, to, um, to government, that's for sure. Even though I don't know if I trust Romney totally to fulfill it, but I think that if he won, he would ha- he would have be under a lot of pressure to um, to adhere to at least somewhat of a conservative policy. Even though it might run against his instincts, I don't think he's going to do what Obama has been talking about and Elizabeth Warren, which is infrastructure improvements, which is a euphemism for another stimulus package. I, I don't like think Ro- I'm sure you would. I don't <laughs> think Mitt Romney is going to do that because the first one mainly didn't go to all that much as we've talked about to uh, infrastructure, did it? It went to paying hacks in different states. No, actually, half yes, of it went we- to income tax uh, deductions, and half of it went to various states to build infrastructure. No, it and went to various call states. People who, who, who fix streets and build bridges hacks? I don't. I call no, it, it didn't go to states to build infrastructure, Patrick. It went to states to just shore up their loss in revenues. Whether or not they used that money for infrastructure, I, I think that they might have used a percentage of it. In Massachusetts, it didn't go to infrastructure. Some of it did. It went to, to prop up the state because they were losing revenues because of the recession. So they but wouldn't have to lay off as many people. They still had to lay off some. Okay, recovery.gov uh, lists tax benefits. This is the uh, overview of funding of the, of the stimulus policy. $297.8 billion went into tax benefits and tax, and tax reduction. $237.8 billion went to contracts, grants, and loans for infrastructure. And $229.6 billion went to entitlements. That's the part you're talking about, too, is shore of state finances. So, in other words, less than a third of it allegedly went to infrastructure. And even that, I think that you'd have to take a look at exactly what they're calling infrastructure. If they're just giving the money to states and expecting that money to go to infrastructure, that's probably not how it works. Well, we don't know. I mean, we, we could find no, out. No, I think, it, I think you could look at it at a state-by-state basis. But my impression is that they, went, they, they gave the money to the state governments because the state governments were suffering from – a a, um, a, ta- a tax shortfall due to the recession, and they didn't want to have to lay off everybody. And that's, they, I mean, they still did those some are jobs of that too. Those are jobs. Yeah, but the I point is that I would argue I don't know about other states, but in Massachusetts, they could have laid off a lot of people without affecting basic services. Well, they could have. You know, other people may disagree with you. It's, it, I think that's the opinion of even liberals in this state. I mean, this state has such an oversized government that we could have easily preserved the positions of people we who actually are working, the teachers and firefighters and cops, and we could have gotten rid of more of the Billy Bulgers, who is getting a million-dollar pension. Well, again, you know, that, I mean, that's this, your opinion, and it's also one very small state. If you go to, to uh, track the money, you'll see that uh, the, there's a list of completed recovery projects uh, broken down by airports, bridges, uh, freeway over yeah, and how many how many are there and and what was the actual cost uh well i just gave you the the numbers on that it's, yeah it's but was long, that uh, is that total you said it was about 200 billion alone, and we have one minute left the city used 12.5 million dollars of the recovery funding to replace the worn pavement providing a smooth ground ride for airplanes and better draining systems to channel the runoff that's just one of them same thing in Atlanta, Hartsfield. Same thing in uh, in Denver's airport too. That's just three examples of where the money went. 
Well, yeah, but again, the, the $200 billion is about a third that is allegedly went to infrastructure. I think if we took a look at the total amount of that, which actually went to infrastructure, it would probably be a fraction of it. Well, I'm and, looking uh, at it, and I'm, I'm well, you're looking at the infrastructure project. That not, doesn't so tell us. You have no way of you have no base of saying. No, that. what and you're looking at is infrastructure projects, but you're not you're not contrasting the cost of those to the two hundred billion dollars that allegedly went to infrastructure. That's what has to be done. We have to take a look at that figure to get the real number okay. in terms of actually how many dollars of the bill of the almost trillion dollar uh, stimulus went to infrastructure. And well, how much of it went to prop up governments? But anyway, well, well, Patrick, Chuck, well, Chuck, you we're can pretty do that, much out of time. They're all there. Yeah, just for what was spent, not what uh, was spent on other things. Right. We have to anyway, we're, we're, we we should take a break. Patrick, would you introduce some musician? I would be happy to. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Andra, who's going to tell, who's going to sing some wonderful songs for us from her new album. That's Andra Suki. Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, soon to be Music Friday. Uh, talk to the musician. 
let me just very quickly remind everybody that uh, our sponsor is Barton Publishing, bartonpublishing.com. Uh, bartonpublishing.com is your source of information to ha- manage your body and your health naturally without uh, expensive or toxic drugs. We have with us a remarkable singer, Andra Suki, who it's kind of hard to classify her. I've been listening to her music all week. You've been listening to her music all week because we've play, been playing little clips of it uh, during the uh, the breaks. And it's hard to say whether she's country or she's Western or she's folk or she's jazz. All I can really say about her is that she's really, really great to listen to. And we got her right here. Andra, oh, welcome to Music Friday. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad to be talking to you today. And thank you for everything that you've said. That's so nice of you. Well, it's all well-deserved. As Henry Kissinger used to say, it has the added advantage of being true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Andrew, let, let, let's just settle the discussion that's been going on in the station all week. Okay. Um, are you country, folk, jazz? Where do you, you put know, yourself? I think we're going with Americana. Americana, okay. It's a more exclu- inclusive, I think, and broad um, genre that that does span the um, that does span many. You know, you can you can include. A little bit of country, a little bit of bluegrass, a little bit of folk, and it allows also for self-expression, like you were saying, you know, jazz or blues or anything like that. But I think Americana um, is a more inclusive genre. It's broad, but, you know, I've always had trouble explaining quite exactly (laughs) where my music falls. Well, I I guess the, the advantage of that is that you've got fans in all the various camps. Oh, well, thank you. I hope so. You know, I just, I just... It's so nice when people like your original music, and it really is putting your heart out there when you when you write a song and and when you show it to the world. I mean, that's showing your insides, and and uh, you have to take the good and the bad, and it's wonderful to hear the good. <laughs> well, I haven't heard any bad yet, and since you mentioned uh, Heart, let's listen to a little bit of the title track uh, from your new album, Little Heart. Oh, great. who I am as a person. 
Well, well, let, let, I want to introduce you to uh, my co-host, uh, Chuck Morris, who is a guitar player and knows a lot more about music than, than I do. Chuck? Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, Sandra. I'm enjoying you Hi, listening Chuck. to music as well. Hi. Oh, thank you. It's nice to meet you. Yes, I, I've been listening all week, and uh, <laughs> it's really like, it's country, but it's crossover. I mean, it's almost pop. kind of reminds me of a little bit of Patsy Cline. Wow. I Thank you so much. I, I haven't heard that one before. You know, people, they always, you, people, a lot of people, they use comparisons to sort of equate, how how would you describe your music? And, and comparisons are uh, one way of doing it, and that is one that I have not heard before. So that and that's a huge compliment. Thank you very much, Chuck. Yeah, and I, I think that she played a role in uh, bringing, uh, crossing uh, country music over into, uh, you know, pop. And, uh, and you potentially could do the same. You're certainly oh, in that tradition. You. Yep. Thank you. Well, you know that I listened to Patsy Cline a lot when I was a kid. That was one of my favorite cassette tapes that I had. I think I almost wore it out. <laughs> if anyone remembers cassette tapes, I mean. Yeah. But uh. <laughs> well, Patrick and I certainly do. Patrick oh, yeah. and I remember the old-fashioned vinyl. We remember forty-five. So do right, I. Patrick? So do I. <laughs> I've worn a couple of those out too when I was a kid, but. Yeah, I well, loved Patsy Klein growing up. Yes, and uh, I mean your, your your recording quality is very very good. You you have you know, I could tell that you just really put a lot of work into that top notch uh, level of musicianship there. Um, oh, thank you so much. What about the, uh, the the doing the live gigs? How was that for you? Well, it's great. Um, actually, my husband and I are are heading out to North Dakota today with uh, my family. My dad is also a folk singer, Chuck Suki, and my brother, Ben Suki, and we have an annual concert, which is tomorrow, south of Mandan, North Dakota. Um, nice. It's this beautiful old building called the Bohemian Hall, which is right off our farm. And we do we always do it um, in the full moon in August, and so the yeah. Saturday nearest the full moon. So the live gigs are fun. Um, my husband, Andrew Perzina, plays guitar, and I play guitar. Sometimes I play a little mandolin. And... Um, when the budget allows, we have an awesome full band, and that's really fun to do, too. Um, most of the time when we're touring, it's usually just my husband and I because, obviously, it's much cheaper for us to just uh, hit the road as the two of us. But um, I think the, the songs still come across, even though on the on the CD it's a full band. I think it's just uh, a little bit different twist when it's more acoustic. Right, and so it's a much more of an acoustic set. And um, how, you know, have you developed, you know, over the years, a, 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 I would imagine, a pretty solid national fan base that you uh, probably well, could follow up? You know, I mean, I get I get wonderful feedback, and I get wonderful emails and, and fan mail and things like that. And sometimes things pop up in the strangest places, and people will come out of the blue and say, will you please come to, you know, this town, you know, it, I'm always surprised, and it always makes me happy that people enjoy, you know, my music. And, you know, we've been traveling a lot lately, so it's been really fun to see who comes out of the woodwork, and, and I love it when people come up and say hi and, and, and you know, talk about their experience that they've had listening to, to my music. It just makes my day. Do you like to travel on the road? I do. I do. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yes. We've been... Um, well, we've been to we've been doing a lot of festivals and conferences, I guess you could say, and then we've sprinkled some gigs in between. And um, 
we were just in Toronto for North by Northeast, and we were lucky enough to be selected as one of the Kerrville uh, 25 New Folk songwriting finalists. So that was a real treat to go down there mm-hmm. to Kerrville, Texas, and be a part of that festival. And, you know, South by Southwest and Folk Lines in Memphis. And, I mean, we've just been going all over the place. And and it's great to be able to do that with my husband, too. So that sure. makes it even more special. Nice. Patrick, do we have something queued up? We do, we do, and we also have an email here. Uh, already, your fans are—you um, you mentioned you've been traveling. And Blythe Summer in Minneapolis says, "When are you going to come back to the Twin Cities? We miss you." <laughs> we're playing at the—I think we're playing at the 318 in Excelsior on—is um, it September 1st? Okay, you heard that, Blythe? So. The 318 in Excelsior, September 1st. So, be there. And yeah. Be, yeah. We've got a, a piece here that uh, I find very curious, so why don't we listen to a little bit of it, and maybe you and Chuck can figure out what it means. Here it goes. It's helpless. <laughs> okay. And 
just always sort of stayed in my in in the group of songs that were among my favorites to perform and I thought, well why not put that on the record? It might be kinda cool. So It's beautiful. It just, it's very unique. Oh, thank you. And uh, you know, there's lots of room to breathe. You know, the the rests are more important than the you know, I, I remember um, someone interviewed a long time ago who asked, what was it that made Beethoven so great as a composer? And the answer was, his rests. Yeah. You know, I've heard people say, you play the silence as much as you right. play the sounds. Um, that one is is a little bit different in with the rest of the tracks, too, in, in the fact that we recorded that live. Mm. So the whole band was playing together That's at the same amazing. time. You know, no click track or anything like that, and uh, yep. it just turns into this magical, this sort of magical thing. And and I thank you. I'm I'm so glad that you guys chose that because that is one of my favorites as well. Um, Amazing. I'm, I think Crazy Horse is playing at Red Rocks this week, and I wish I could go see them there. But <laughs> but you're gonna be playing yourself. When I first heard that, and I thought this is a, an amazing change of pace, I didn't realize you'd, you'd uh, record it live and. and you you have an extremely powerful, clear voice, and to be able to do that live without all the stuff you could do in the the studio is is amazing. It's really a, a testament to what a fabulous voice you have. Oh, thank you so much. You know, when when you play with with really great musicians and you have a really great band, it makes it so easy to let go and express yourself, and and it. Uh, it takes away all the inhibitions, you know. I didn't feel like I had to control anything or I didn't feel like I had to lead anyone. Um, we all, I think it was our drummer, J.T. Bates, who actually just said, you know, we're all good. Let's just do it live. And so we did. And uh, and, it, and I think it turned out in, in, to be a beautiful a beautiful piece. So Wonderful. I'm thrilled. Yes, yes indeed. I wanted to ask you about something you said. You said your your parents were uh, also folk singers, but you grew up on a big ranch, though, didn't you? Yeah, that's where they're still doing it. Um, they just branded last week. Uh, they raise grass-fed organic beef. It's really wonderful, and that's a really nice treat for for us. Uh, I'm not a vegetarian, but Obviously. I am. Uh, I am a person who I like to know where my meat comes from and know that it was raised well, and it certainly is raised well on. Our family farm, and my dad grew up, um, he was, I think, originally, you know, my mom was a singer growing up, and my dad, too, and I think he got really into it. Um, he says the first time he heard, uh, uh, watch the field behind the plow, turn to straight dark rose, you know that Stan Rogers song? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that inspired him that he could do farming and music at the same time. And it kind of turned into a thing. He's got several records out. Um, and uh, it's, you know, he's the state troubadour of North Dakota, which is kind of a funny thing. But he was able to uh, mesh together this farming and music lifestyle, and it was a wonderful experience for me to grow up in that because I got the best of so many different things. I got the exposure of going to uh, folk festivals and, like, the Winnipeg Folk Festival because we would play as a family and... And I think it gave me so much exposure to things I would not have had if had he had one not been been there, whether it be the farming or whether it be the music part. So. Well, 
we have a, an email here from uh, another fan of yours, uh, Bossman8240, who, who asks two questions. He, he, he wants to know, first of all, um, what your tour schedule is, and I guess he, we can send him to your website. That's www.andrasuki, that's A-N-D-R-A-C-U-C-H-Y.net. S-U-C-H-Y, yep. Yeah, and remember it's .net, not .com. But he also yeah. wants to know, do you uh, routinely record your concerts live? That's a good question. Um, I don't routi- routinely record my concerts live. Uh, some of the larger ones have been recorded. Uh, some of the larger CD release shows that we've done, because that, they've been with a full band. and, and But when it's just um, Andrew and I out touring on our own, I guess we probably... We probably don't, but I certainly don't mind if other people do. You don't? Mm-hmm. Oh, not at all. No. Well, I mean, I guess I'm sort of like the, you know, the grateful dad in that way. So, so you don't mind if there's uh, bootleg copies of your concerts out there? Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that in front of, if my record label is listening right now. Maybe I should talk to them first. Um, <laughs> let's just leave that as un, as I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a well Andre, that brings up the question I ask every one of our guests and uh, musicians' guests, and that is how do you make money? Ah, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> obviously, you know, I've been lucky enough to, to do a lot of Prairie Home Companion shows, and that's they're very gracious, and um, I also do a lot of commercial studio work, and so ah, great. you have probably heard me on some commercials that you wouldn't think are me, but that has helped out financially quite a bit, because as you probably know, being a touring musician mostly is not, it's not the best business plan in the world, but... Uh, like being a radio host. <laughs> right, I mean, in this day and age, a musician or anybody in the creative arts, unless you really got luck locked in early, you know, you have to wear many hats. Yeah, and, and um, I always you know, try to, to say yes more than no, you know. I've taken jobs that Good. I I may not have, you know, they may not have been my favorite, but I told myself at least I'm singing for a living. And Exactly, and, and the people who are purists are the people who are now, you know, working the shoe store at the corner. Correct, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't say that my husband and I are wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. Right, but you make a living. We make a living, and and it's great. We've got our house that we've had for almost 11 years. And, uh, you know, I, compared to a lot of people that I knew growing up on the farm, I don't want for anything, as it says in in Lilhart. You know, and I feel so blessed to be able to make a living doing music. There are so many musicians I know that can't do that, and... Sure. You know, it, it, you have to you have to take whatever work comes comes to you. And exactly. Uh, Andrea, uh, what commercials would we have heard your voices on? Let's see. Um, I've done a <laughs> few Barbie commercials. If you have any, if if you have kids, I've done some Polly Pocket commercials. Oh, Target. Sure. The largest one that I've had recently going um, was for Stella Artois beer, the new can. Oh yeah, that's a big yeah. campaign. Yeah. Yep. I was on. I was. And some, bah, 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 you know, just that kind of stuff on that. And uh, I did a White Castle commercial once, and you know, I've done. I mean, I've done a lot of them, but sometimes you just have to uh, take the the artistic uh, your sort of 
thinking about yourself, you know, take the inhibition out of it and just go with whatever the person, whatever the producer needs you to do. And and there have been times where I'm like, oh, God, I can't believe I'm doing this. And But I think it all it all um, sort of compiles into building building you into a stronger artist eventually, you know, so... Well, well, Chuck, we have a, a, another one of her songs here that's um, interestingly titled 90 Miles an Hour. That sounds like it's going to be a, a, a change of pace. So I, should I start sure. it up? Sure. Uh, let it roll. We walked around the northeast part of town the other night. I really didn't mind I can't quite remember what we did or what we talked about but I'm sure I didn't mind and all those things you do for me are so sweet baby and you do them all the time I was thinking there was something we could do the next time we want something So the train to Chicago moves at 90 miles an hour, I take it. You know, I actually did look it up at the average speed of the Amtrak trains, and, and uh, so at least at the, when I wrote that, that was what the average was. But that song came about um, because my husband and I had been doing these fun little, they call them contests, but they're not really contests. It was just uh, basically whoever had the most friends in the audience would win, but they were called 36-hour songwriting contest put on by this local this Minneapolis music magazine called Rift Magazine and uh, you you would be emailed a topic and then sorry my cat is meowing here you'd be emailed a topic and then 36 hours later perform it wow. so you would actually perform it live and so you know ready or not <laughs> and this time the, to- the topic was public transportation and Andrew and I had been um playing quite a bit in Chicago, and we just got so sick of the, you know, really, it should only take five hours to get there from Minneapolis, but it winds up taking eight or nine because of the traffic going into the city, and finally, we we had just mentioned to each other, you know, we should just take the train, because it brings you right into downtown, and you avoid all the traffic, and uh, so when the the topic on this songwriting contest came up as public transportation, it it made it kind of easy because we had already sort of had this conversation, and so that's that's where that song came from. And you added in the twangy guitars and the and the great uh, harmonica there, and you had, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had a jazz lyriced country western song about a train, <laughs> as yeah. most country western songs are so, about either trains uh, or pickup trucks. Country truck, fusion, right? <laughs> country fusion, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's a fun one. It's funny because. I, you never know what songs people are are going to are going to um, gear towards, and that one has 
I don't know. That one has been a favorite for, for a lot of people, and it and it just always surprises me to hear what people's favorite songs are and on the record, and and it's really fun too because it gives you a different perspective of what people, what speaks to different people, and and uh, and what catches their ear or their heart. So. Well, Chuck, we're, we're we're closing in on the end of the hour, and I was going to ask um, our guest. Uh, about her her tour schedule, I know you're going to sure. be at the Bohemian Hall in um, what town t- tonight or tomorrow? South of Man, tomorrow, South of Mandan, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Do, do you ever um, get out to either one of the coasts so Chuck or I could see you? Oh, you know, occasionally, but it has been a while. Um, the last time I have been to either coast has actually been with with Prairie Home Companion. I haven't. We haven't yet been there um, ourselves. I think we're going to be at um, in St. Louis at the Folk Alliance Midwest, and then we have we have some shows coming up. I will make sure that my website is updated as well. Um, we have done a lot of touring, and now we're kind of getting to the point now where we're thinking about the next record. So, great. Okay. Chuck, can you suggest a a place for her in in Boston? Oh, Boston ah. would be a great town for you, for you Andrew. Yeah, There's yeah. plenty well, of places up there. Yes, uh, Middle East Coffee House is good in Central Square, Cambridge. There's okay. a lot of clubs. Okay. Yep. And yeah, I would love to get out there. That would be awesome. I I hadn't had a the lobster rolls out there. I hadn't had one until we <laughs> yeah. we were just there um, last summer and. Man, that's good. And the and and the other thing I I was the mac- macaroni and cheese with lobster in it. Are you kidding me? Well, I, no, I used to like the lobster back in the days when I ate lobster. But no, it's the best. No question about it. <laughs> well, we are out of time, unfortunately. Want to tell people where they can get your records? Yes. You can get the records on um, from my website or from Red House Records. Um, Amazon, iTunes, but I think if you go right to my website, there's a pretty easy link that you can click right on. And that website again is www.andrasuchy.net. Yes, and if you do .com, it will redirect. Okay. All right. And, of course, we're listening to Little Heart and Chuck. That's it. we got to wrap up. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. See you next week. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All right. Stay tuned for Mike Siegel and Cyber Station. Have a good weekend, everybody. Have a great weekend, everybody. And tune in to Fairness Radio next week. We've got a great uh, lineup coming up, including the author of Bailout, the man who was appointed by President Bush to uh, police the tarp. Here we go. You listen to Little Heart, the title track of the album. Bye.
to be. 